Hello, thank you for joining me. This is very exciting to be on Normie TV talking about advances in molds and mycotoxin protocols. This is a big deal because uh, these days the whole topic of mycotoxins is on the minds of virtually everybody who's working in the mold remediation field. And I hope to clarify some of the basics about that and more importantly bring you some exciting information that's out there. So let's just get right at it. For those of you who are not familiar with me, I'm Michael Pinto. I am honored to serve as the CEO at Wondermakers Environmental. We're uh, based in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, you can see on the vanity slide there some of the things about me in terms of my background and stuff. I think the biggest part is down toward the bottom. Uh, it's, I don't necessarily just write for the fun of writing. I write and share things with people because it's important to give back to the industry that you're part of. And I have been so blessed to know so many people in the industry and uh, gain wisdom from them that uh, it is important to give back. And so I do that through the writing and presentations like this. And the other thing I would point out is that I'm a, what I call a simple science guy uh, and a practical science guy. I mean, I can do theoretical stuff and certainly have done uh, peer-reviewed papers and all of that. But my real goal is to help people understand how to take information from a lot of disparate sources and then um, mold them together, meld them together so that they can do something with it. So there you can see uh, the explanation there, taking technical stuff and then explaining it in layperson's terms. Over the next, uh, course of the next few minutes, we're going to talk about mycotoxins in a very specific way. We're going to begin with a description of it, and uh, then we'll talk a little bit about the health effects. Man, I could do a whole program on just the health effects alone. It's so interesting, and that's really an area of the mycotoxin research that is getting a lot of interest right now. Uh, I have some fascinating things about how the mycotoxins actually migrate in different environments. Then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the sampling procedures we can use specifically for mycotoxins as compared to just for mold. Then we're going to look at some testing that we did to determine whether, um, you know, different uh, sorts of products and processes can actually remove the mycotoxins because that's the question that people ask all the time that are being impacted by the mold and the mycotoxins uh, in a negative sense is, can they actually be cleaned from the environment? And then, uh, you can probably guess the answer to that because the last uh, part of the program, we're going to talk about an actual mycotoxin cleaning process. So kind of giving away uh, the answer to number five by already having number six in there. Let's just go ahead, though, and talk about what they are first, because some of the people listening in uh, may be very well versed in terms of mycotoxins, may actually be experts in this uh, field, uh, while others have heard the term and really don't understand what it is. Unlike the mold spores and uh, uh, mold colonies that grow, uh, mycotoxins are part of mold, but they're not a living part of mold. They're considered to be a metabolite. And that's a fancy word for chemicals 
that are produced inside a body or inside an organism that kind of helps it uh, grow and uh, move along. It's a, um, uh, it's a chemical that is made out of the nutrients and everything that uh, either you or in this case, the mold takes in. And a lot of these uh, chemicals can be pretty um, complex, what we'd call long chain hydrocarbons and things. And they are poisons in many cases. And that is specific and um, by design, at least in terms of the mold, because it's uh, designed to protect the mold from other competitors for that nutrient source. So the poisons are uh, produced by the mold to kill the bacteria and even other fungi and insects and even, um, you know, small uh, rodents and things that might be encouraged to eat the mold. Uh, because it is a poison and because a lot of the molds grow on uh, foodstuffs, the uh, mycotoxins actually become a big problem for us in terms of the agricultural industry. And that's where most of our um, uh, information, at least up until the last 10 years, uh, came from in regards to mycotoxin was in the foods. Uh, now, however, we have got some information, more and more information on the mycotoxins that are coming specifically from the restoration field and the people that are doing research on the mycotoxins that are impacting people, not from eating the food, but from living in mold contaminated environments. And because of this, we have lots of different items that we are aware of that are important for people to keep in the back of their minds as we go through and talk about some of the other aspects of the mycotoxins. One is that they are um, produced throughout the entire um, organism of the mold. It's not just on the spores. It can also come off of the... Um, hyphae, which are the uh, connecting branches of the mold, and the mycelia, which is what would be the equivalent of the roots of the mold that hold it to the surface. Any and all of those can actually have the mycotoxins that is exuded, as they say, uh, from the pores of the uh, different parts of the mold. The fascinating thing here, this is so interesting to me, I've got three pictures of Stachybotrys here, and only some of the uh, mold types will produce uh, the mycotoxins. The Stachybotrys is one of the more famous ones for producing the poisons. But it, the upper photo, you can see uh, the kind of the branched filaments and the spores of the um, uh, Stachybotrys attached to the spore head, if you will. And then the middle photo, um, a little bit more magnification and you can see the spores in more detail. And then that photo at the bottom is actually like a um, 100,000 magnification of a, a stachybotry spore. And you're just seeing a little cleft on the spore. And even within that little fuzzy part of the spore itself, you can see where the white arrow is pointed to. That is the actual mycotoxins being ex exuded or, or just uh, oozing, if you will, out of that uh, part of the spore. You can also see some of that same uh, material uh, farther to the back there on the edge of the connecting tissue. Uh, the, the fascinating thing about that is the first time I saw that in 
quite honestly, ever since, uh, when I when I look at that, the first thing I think of is like tar. And as it turns out, the mycotoxins are indeed sticky. Um, it's interesting too, this has been uh, true throughout my nearly 40 years of safety and health and environmental service, is that a lot of times we just don't understand what we don't understand until the science changes and particularly the sampling science changes. So uh, this is probably um, about 14 years ago that I read this report by this uh, Swedish uh, investigator by the name of Erica Bloom. And she was at that point in time, one of the few people in the mold world anyway, that was focusing on the mycotoxins. And because of the uh, sort of testing that she was doing, which at the time was very, um, you know, detailed and very expensive, but because she was doing it as research projects, she was able to get away with some of that. Um, she made a very bold comment here, which I've got in the quote marks. And she said, previously, it was claimed that the occurrence of mold does not necessarily mean there are toxins present. And she's talking about this in regards to water damaged buildings. But there are with an exclamation point. On the contrary, we can assume that whenever there's visible mold, there's also mold toxins. And again, she's specifically talking about this for water damaged buildings. So, you know, in some respects that changes things because people used to say in the past, well, only certain molds produce mycotoxins. So if we don't get, um, you know, sample results that show that there's any stachybotrys or there's no catomium or something like that, there's probably not any mycotoxins. And the reality of the situation is no, it's the other way around. I think we probably have to assume in water damage and mold contaminated buildings that there are mycotoxins until we're proven otherwise. And then that changes again, how we view the health effects that can be related to mycotoxins. Um, I've had this chart in my textbook for, uh, you know, all of the different editions of it uh, with some minor variations. But so that means that this chart uh, in a general sense is like 22, 23 years old. And um, the fact of the matter is it still, um, you know, points out the facts. There's all these different things that are related to mold that cause people to have health effects. And uh, the third one down, the mycotoxins, the poisons there, you can see some of the symptoms are absolutely the most um, significant. Obviously, it's the only one that, uh, uh, although it probably should be under infections as well, but um, one of the few of the four that talks about actually killing people, the mycotoxins and the infections as compared to the VOCs mm -hmm. and the uh, allergic nature of just the spores and things. But yeah, this is serious business when you're getting exposed to the mycotoxins. Uh, part of the reason that it's so serious is because depending on the mycotoxin, how the exposure happens, uh, the condition of the person that's being exposed, uh, lots of different things, the poisons themselves can actually kill different cells in our bodies. Uh, and think about it. I mean, if this is a poison that was designed to keep bacteria from um, competing for the food source, but then also other molds, and by the way, some insects, uh, and even uh, small rodents and stuff that might want to eat the mold, 
uh, all I can say is I, I did learn from my mother somewhere along the line is, uh, you know, Michael, don't eat the rat poison. And if the mycotoxins are actually kind of a form of uh, rat or rodent poison, uh, we certainly don't want to be ingesting that or even inhaling that. It, it can do real damage to our different body systems. The other interesting thing is that it has now been uh, not just speculated, but proven that it can affect our immune system. And then that makes us more susceptible to cancers and uh, infections if we have um, mycotoxin exposure, water damage buildings. I'm still waiting to see a study. I haven't seen one yet, but it would be fascinating to me to find out if there was any connection between the COVID deaths and some of the nursing homes where a lot of those deaths were happening and whether those were water damaged buildings that had mold in them. Because again, the people who are exposed to the uh, mycotoxins from the mold and water damaged buildings, their immune systems get impacted. And so therefore, um, they're more susceptible to these, uh, what they call comorbidities. I will say that the um, uh, science is moving forward these days. Uh, there are some experiments now because people used to think, well, because we had all of our, or a good share of our mold and mycotoxin information coming from the agricultural industry, that it was all about the ingestion. But the primary exposure, exposure route for individuals that are in a water damaged building is um, inhalation. And I, I do remember being involved even as an expert witness in a case a number of years ago. And one of the experts on the other side of the case, which was in this case was the defense, was saying, um, you know, you can never breathe enough mycotoxins in through the air to actually damage someone. It, it always had to be eaten. And so if the person in this particular case had been shown to have mycotoxins in their system, the, the other expert was arguing that the only way that that happens is through ingesting some sort of mold contaminated food. And the answer is today, 20 years later, we know that that is absolutely not the case. And part of that is because you don't have to be exposed to nearly as much if you're inhaling it as if you're eating it. And there you can see at least one study showed that the 40 times less can cause problem uh, in your system if you're inhaling it as compared to uh, ingesting it. Now, if you're at all interested in the medical side of it, as I am, even though I said in my uh, slide there, I think I said that I'm not a doctor, I don't even pretend to be one in these presentations, but uh, I'm just fascinated by some of the medical stuff. And in this case, I've read plenty of studies where they have proven that the mycotoxins from mold and water damaged buildings do get inhaled, but they don't necessarily have to go in the mouth and the nose and then down the trachea and into your lungs and then through the lungs and then into your bloodstream and then eventually, you know, to your brain and other internal organs and that sort of stuff. That's a... Uh, that's a bad route to go, but it's, it's also a little bit more indirect route. What they're finding is that uh, some of the mycotoxins uh, have this ability to go into the 
um, nose and mouth and in the back of the nose and mouth where that connects, there's a, a very soft tissue in uh, that particular area that just uh, kind of holds your brain up in your head. And the mycotoxins actually pass through that uh, barrier and, and skip all the lungs and the bloodstream and all that. And they get breathed in and then pass right into the uh, brain. And that might be and is indeed speculated in a number of these studies as to why the uh, number of symptoms that people report in water damaged and mold damaged buildings, a lot of them are neurological systems because it gets right into the brain. It starts doing the damage in the brain. The other thing that's kind of scary to me, uh, just because there's so much that we hear about it, but um, the connection between the mold exposure and the mycotoxin exposure and cancer is pretty well, um, you know, undisputed at this point. Uh, they've actually tracked the mechanisms of how the different types of toxins, the gileotoxin there is uh, just one of the many mycotoxins. That one happens to be produced by uh, some of the aspergillus species. But, um, you know, they, they take that and they've tracked that. And how does it get that specific toxin get into a person? Where does it go when it gets in the person? And then how does that lead to an increased uh, risk of uh, cancer? And uh, as I said, there's plenty of studies out there that dial all that stuff in. So we've got the poisoning. We've got the um, immune system impact. We've got the cancer. Uh, I personally think that we're going to see a connection here in the next few years between mycotoxins and a number of chronic illnesses. Uh, you can see on the uh, bottom of the slide here that there was a, a recent uh, summit where a number of doctors and clinicians and um, you know, mold remediation people and research scientists and everybody got together to try and explore a little bit of this. And there does seem to be some reasonable uh, information that's pointing toward a potential connection between mycotoxin exposure and things like cystic fibrosis, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, multiple sclerosis, and even autism. And uh, with a number of water-damaged buildings and mold-contaminated buildings, uh, which continue to go up, by the way, there's other studies that talk about that, primarily because of the building practices and the type of materials that we're using in building that make them more susceptible to water damage and mold growth, um, it, it's not surprising to me that we're seeing uh, greater and greater levels of some of these uh, chronic illnesses in our general population. Moving on in terms of the uh, next step in the uh, process here, kind of understanding the mycotoxins so we can deal with them uh, more effectively. Some of the critical properties of mycotoxins, they're non-volatile. Well, what does that mean to the non-scientific person? It means they don't generally evaporate and get into the air at normal temperatures and pressures that you find in occupied uh, you know, structures. So it's not like water. If you just leave out in a glass or in a bowl or a pan or something, even if you don't put it on the stove, over time that water will 
move from a liquid to a vapor and just get into the air, it will evaporate from that glass. That means that it's volatile. The mycotoxins, on the other hand, are not. They tend to just sit there. Um, and again, that's because they're uh, more complex chemicals and a little bit heavier uh, from a molecular weight standpoint. So they don't go into the air on their own all that easily. They don't evaporate. Um, but that also means that they're not easily broken down or destroyed. I mean, they won't, uh, they're not water soluble. Uh, they tend to be fairly sticky and that works both for and against us because it sticks to surfaces, but a lot of the surfaces have dust on the surface. So the mycotoxins, if they do get broken away from the actual mold organism, um, they settle on the surface. Some of them will stick to the surface, some will stick to the dust that's on the surface. And then once the dust moves, now that's carrying the mycotoxins around. So that's what we're talking about here in this next slide. Um, just again, I, I'm sorry for being such a geek about this, but I get all excited about some of these uh, studies and stuff where they were talking about and measuring the rate of the mycotoxins moving around in the air in a building and determined or figured out that the mycotoxins from different fungal species move at different rates. Some don't move very much at all and others actually get on the dust and move um, rather aggressively throughout a building. Some of the um, primary methods, as you can see there, that moves the mycotoxins around, mostly the HVAC systems and the occupant movement. Um, however, that's mostly after the mycotoxins have been disturbed from their source. So the fungal colony uh, gets disturbed because somebody wipes it or sprays it with something, uh, trying to get rid of it. That sends the mycotoxins into the air. The next thing we know, uh, you know, they're settling on the dust and the surfaces, and then they're just moving around um, almost uh, without uh, any sort of controls. Uh, talking about mycotoxin sampling, I mentioned earlier on uh, with the study that was done by Erica Bloom that one of the reasons that we don't understand or appreciate the mycotoxins is because we really haven't had any good environmental way of sampling for them. Uh, 12, 14 years ago when um, uh, Ms. Bloom was doing her studies and stuff, the uh, cost that she was uh, incurring for each of the samples that she was taking to the surfaces to try and find the mycotoxins was in the equivalent of thousands of dollars. And I don't know if in Sweden that's kroners or what they're using uh, for their uh, monetary system over there. But the equivalent was several, uh, you know, like $1,000 or more per sample. Um, obviously, if that's as expensive as the samples are, you're not going to get a lot of uh, samples taken just in the average uh, person's home who happens to have water damage or mold in their home. That has changed in the last, uh, you know, 14, 15 years dramatically. We'll talk about that in just a second. Before I get there, however, I want to point out that there's, um, we were way ahead on the medical side than we were on the environmental side. The biological samples for mycotoxins uh, coming from a blood sample or urine sample have been around for 
many, many years. I will point out, however, the there is no uh, FDA-approved urine sample for mycotoxins. There's a lot of laboratories that offer them, a lot of facilities that will allow you to send in a urine sample and tell you what's in the urine from a mycotoxin standpoint. But the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States has never accepted that as a good method of determining whether you are having mycotoxin exposure. Uh, the only thing that they will uh, put their trust in is the blood samples for the mycotoxins. And obviously that means that somebody, you know, some trained professional has to do a blood draw and then submit that into the laboratory. On the environmental side, we were a little farther ahead on the surface sampling than we were air samples. Um, until just the last uh, few years, we uh, really did not have any, um, what I would uh, consider to be accurate air sampling methods uh, for uh, mycotoxins. Interestingly enough, uh, and sometimes I think this happens just because of the competition and everything that's built into the uh, capitalism in that um, literally uh, a few years ago, uh, first one um, detection method came out that could pick up mycotoxins in the air, and that was uh, air answers. And part of that was because they're using a new uh, capture technology instead of just trying to grab the partic uh, particulates on a sticky surface or something. Uh, they were using what they call this electrokinetic uh, capture technology. Uh, that's that middle uh, picture there in the slide. Those are the... Um, uh, probes that actually go into the uh, sampling device on the left there. And then uh, you can actually run that sampler for uh, not just a few minutes, like some of the other air samplers, you can run it for several hours or even several days. And then they strip the uh, all the materials off of those stainless steel uh, probes and uh, analyze that and they can even look for mycotoxins. Another system that you see there is from a Respare uh, laboratory and uh, a little bit more complicated uh, has a, a you know a sample collection pump and a very special type of filter cassette and you set it up in the breathing zone on a stand and you run that for two hours and you can get um, a, a very good idea of mycotoxins that are in the air. Um, both of those um, air sampling systems by the way use the same analytical technique that's the PCR, which is the uh, polymerase chain reaction process to get their uh, results. Now, regardless of which um, air sampling technique you're using or surface sampling, which are swabs and um, uh, you know wipes uh, generally to look for mycotoxins, the crazy thing in the industry right now is each lab has figured out on their own which mycotoxins they want to look for. And there really is no coordination between the labs that are doing the medical testing necessarily, you know, whether it be a blood or urine sample, and even the environmental labs. So it's really weird uh, in terms of trying to get good data when you're working with a client and figure out uh, which mycotoxins might be impacting them and et cetera when you have gaps in the knowledge because the 
laboratory that does the blood sample is identifying the mycotoxin from the stachybotrys, but the laboratory that's doing the urine sample, maybe they don't. And it gets all crazy and things like that. From an air sampling standpoint, you can see down there at the bottom, um, you know, I haven't seen anything faster than a single hour. So it's not like a spur trap cassette that you can take a sample within just a few minutes. It's a, a minimum of an hour or two and all the way up to 24 or even multiple day samples if you're using the um, uh, air answers uh, that you saw in the previous slide. So lots of information and believe me there's a lot more out there and, and I'll, I'll give you contact information at the end here in case people want to ask questions but uh, you know we're going to keep moving along here and see can we figure out and answer that question there in uh, purple underneath the chart can mycotoxins be removed in other words is there a product or a process that we can identify that is going to um, result in the mycotoxins actually being removed from the surfaces. And again, we're going back to what um, uh, Erica Bloom said, if there's mold, there's mycotoxins. Uh, there's also other studies that show if we do a standard cleaning procedure, even a good one, uh, standard for mold remediation, you're gonna be leaving the mycotoxins behind. So that's why uh, I've got kind of the X there on the HEPA sandwich cleaning that most people in the restoration industry are familiar with, where you do HEPA vacuuming and then you damp wipe with some um, antimicrobial and uh, even there they're specifying a microfiber towel and then you HEPA vacuum again. What we find in that situation, what the research has shown is that the HEPA vacuum is very good. It removes a lot of the gross particulate. Um, then you do your damp wiping and that removes even more and you're using antimicrobial a lot of times to help uh, break it away from the surface if you can. And then uh, you come back with the uh, HEPA vacuum with the idea that if you've broken anything off of the surface by the damp wiping that didn't get picked up, you can then pick it up with the HEPA vacuum. And that works for mold, it works for a lot of small particulates, it works very well for asbestos and lead dust and um, even a lot of the um, uh, illicit drugs and things like that. The difficulty is that the mycotoxins, as we talked about in a, a few slides earlier, they're very sticky. They stick to the surface. So yes, the HEPA vacuum will get the mycotoxins that are stuck to the dust particles, but it doesn't necessarily get the mycotoxins that are stuck to the uh, surfaces. And then the dry wiping or even a wet wiping with a standard antimicrobial it doesn't necessarily break it away from the surface. So if you just come back with another um, HEPA vacuuming, it's, the vacuuming's not gonna have enough suction to actually break the chemical bond of the mycotoxins to the surface. That's why the uh, term HEPA pizza was coined. Uh, and that is uh, similar to a HEPA sandwich cleaning, but you do the HEPA vacuuming first, you do your damp wiping, and then you do a dry wiping at the end with a microfiber towel. And the reason for that is that the microfiber towel actually has a kind of, it's not the correct term, but it's a, like a static electric cling to it with all the small microscopic fibers that are in there. And so when those come across the surface that interacts with the uh, 
essentially the electrostatic cling that's keeping this sticky mycotoxin to the surface, and it can actually break that and uh, move that off. Uh, of course, that's helped if you have a uh, chemistry that also is effective at breaking the mycotoxins loose, and then you use that in the um, damp wiping uh, section of the HEPA pizza, the second step. And so that was one of the things that uh, at Wondermakers we were curious about, because as I said before, we're just practical science people. What is it that's going to work? Um, I had read some studies that perhaps the standard uh, quaternary ammonium compound uh, antimicrobials were not going to be the best for mycotoxins. I, uh, you know, heard other things that maybe, um, you know, different sorts of solvents or uh, citric acid sorts of things might work and uh, came up with this idea for a test. Just take one of the more difficult uh, materials that restoration contractors run into when they're doing cleaning. Uh, so they've already done like the removal of the surface mold uh, on the drywall. And then you see lumber or OSB or particle board or something behind that that also has the mold or maybe doesn't, maybe just got cross-contaminated and so it's got mycotoxins on that surface. Well, OSB is a lot more difficult to clean than, uh, you know, like formica or something smooth. So that's what we did. We took uh, sections of OSB, we marked them, found a laboratory that had the uh, correct safety procedures and the uh, hoods and everything so they could apply mycotoxins. It's uh, kind of scary to me if you have the right uh, laboratory certifications and stuff. You can just buy mycotoxins. You can buy all sorts of mycotoxins. Hey, let's just buy poisons. Uh, and they come in, you know, little bottles and they're all uh, liquefied and all of that. And so then the mycotoxins get sprayed on the uh, marked boards and then you do some cleaning with uh, different chemicals and you figure out which ones work uh, to remove the mycotoxins by measuring the amount of mycotoxins that are on the boards before you do the cleaning and then the amount of mycotoxins after the uh, cleaning. So here's a little bit more uh, detailed look at how that gets done. Obviously you have to have some uh, real controls in place so that you're not cross-contaminating or hurting the people that are doing the testing or cross-contaminating their laboratories and things. So you can see that's like a biosafety level one uh, cabinet that the person is working with there. But some of the uh, classes of chemicals that are used in uh, antimicrobial cleaners and stuff that have been suggested that might be um, useful against myco uh, mycotoxins, chlorine compounds, alcohols, uh, hydrogen peroxide, acids, quats, that's quaternary ammonium compounds, and iodine. Uh, prior to doing any testing, the one that I had done some reading on that had some test results that showed that it didn't work very well was the quats, the quaternary ammonium compounds. So uh, I'm not here to throw shade on any particular product or, um, you know, chemistry or anything like that. We're just doing the testing to help see what's actually going to work. Um, in this particular case, uh, we had um, a hypochlorous acid solution that was um, uh, put out by Superstratum uh, that uh, actually tested really well. 
you can see at the um, bottom there that the total mycotoxin removal was 94 to 98%. And uh, for three of the specific types of mycotoxins, um, it was literally 100% removal. So some of the mycotoxins that are associated with the aspergillus and the penicillin and um, uh, some of the catomium ones and things like that, 100% removal. Uh, the one where the um, uh, reduction was the worst was on uh, the trichothecenes, and that's the one that is uh, the mycotoxin that's primarily associated with stachybotrys. So again, um, and that's just a very brief overview. There's a, a whole paper that's out there that um, I'll point to here in a minute that you can get to that has a lot more details on that. Um, but what this tells us is that if you're going to do mold remediation, and particularly if you're doing this for sensitized individuals who are more susceptible to the mycotoxin exposures and stuff, you're going to have to adjust your cleaning procedures. You're going to have to choose your cleaning chemicals more carefully. And more importantly, you're going to have to adjust that, that standard cleaning process and migrate from a HEPA sandwich to a HEPA pizza. So as you think about that, you also have to go further and go back to what we talked about at the beginning of how the mycotoxins do stick to surfaces but then they stick to the dust and then they move in the air currents, either through the HVAC systems or the uh, just the movement of people around them or disturbing them or, you know, accidentally brushing up against surface, things like that. They move all over the place. So the uh, issue now is in the IICRC uh, standard for mold remediation called the S520 standard. Um, they talk about having three conditions in a building that has uh, water damage and mold contamination. Condition three is actually seeing the visible mold contamination. Condition one, on the other end, is not having a problem. That's what they call normal fungal ecology. It's not, you don't have any mold growth that you wouldn't expect to be in a building. Uh, maybe a little bit around the edge of a windowsill or something like that, but that's considered to be normal. So you've got those two extremes. You've got the normal on one end and you've got the visibly contaminated on the other end where people know they've got a, a mold uh, contamination problem. So I've got mold, let's say, down in the basement. The difficulty is what's going on upstairs or around that area uh, where you can see the visible mold. And that's what the IICRC folks uh, call condition two. Those are settled spores and mycotoxins in areas where you may not actually see the visible growth. And now that we know that the mycotoxins and, and we've known for a long time the spores move rather aggressively around different buildings and stuff, there's got to be, in my opinion anyway, more effort at looking at the areas that are outside of the main mold remediation problem. So again, I've got water leaks on my um, exterior wall in the basement. I get the water leaks fixed. I've got mold uh, down in my basement. Uh, restoration contractor comes in, sets up a containment around it, removes it, tests inside the containment, finds that everything is perfect, wonderful, tear down the barriers, goes home, gets paid, life is good, except 
that before that got set up as a containment, as that mold was growing, some of that was being dislodged into the air, the spores, the mycotoxins, all of that were getting distributed throughout that house, probably also even in the HVAC system. So if you're not cleaning the rest of the house, you're not cleaning some of the contents, you're not cleaning the HVAC system, for the people who are sensitized, if you don't go through that process, they're never getting away from the mycotoxins. And then they, uh, you know, have been frustrated that they're not getting any better with their medical treatments, but that's because they're just being re-exposed because we're not cleaning all the surfaces. So uh, I will point out, as I said before, I'm not here to dog any particular product or process or anything. And, and I'll even give credit where credit is due in terms of the HEPA sandwich approach and things. That does a good job in removing a lot of the uh, spores and the mycotoxins uh, that are uh, potentially on the various surfaces. It doesn't do a great job, meaning the HEPA sandwich, in terms of removing all the mycotoxins. And for that, um, that's why we're recommending and the um, uh, studies seem to be pointing more and more toward using that HEPA pizza approach where you use a good um, mycotoxin removing chemical on the second step of the HEPA pizza and then use a dry disposable microfiber wipe on the third step that helps to pull the remaining uh, mycotoxins um, from the surfaces. In terms of individuals that have uh, sensitivities to mold, I, I cannot emphasize this enough. And when we're dealing with mycotoxins and potential mycotoxin um, poisoning, adequate work is just not good enough. You've got to find uh, the various sources. You've got to remove all the residue. And uh, even beyond that, once you get it clean, you got to put stuff back and rebuild and take care of the uh, original water source or else you're going to have uh, more mold growth and then the whole process is just going to start all over again. So it's just being proactive and detailed all the way through. Uh, people ask me this all the time, and I'm just going to be blunt here. I'm going to show you some stuff. I don't have a lot of um, scientific evidence at this point in time about these um, non-cleaning treatments for mold. So again, the Superstrem folks who have a hypochlorous acid cleaner that does a very nice job removing the mycotoxins also has a chlorine dioxide system, which they call their remediation bomb. And um, the thought process is, well, the chlorine dioxide gas would have a positive impact on breaking down any of the chemistry of the mycotoxins that might be left in the building. And I'm looking forward, hoping to do some testing to that uh, effect somewhere down the line. But these uh, people that are coming out right now and saying, well, we can gas stuff, we can fog stuff, we can spray stuff, we can do this, we can do that. Um, there's limited scientific evidence that uh, supports that. Uh, I hope, as I said, to see more of that in the future. But right now, I would say, um, if you want to do something like this, you want a, a gas or fog at the end as a supplemental step to your cleaning process, have at it. But to think that somehow you can just fog or gas a house and that's going to take care of 
all the mold, all the spores, all the mycotoxins. That's just, that's fantasy world right now. So let me just wrap up here, last couple of slides. And the simple thing is, what did we learn? Well, uh, it just starts with mycotoxins. They are poisons. They contribute to a lot of illnesses that people suffer in water damage buildings. They're oftentimes left after standard remediation is done, either because they didn't clean areas of the house where the mycotoxins migrated to, or they cleaned them but didn't clean them in a way that removes them from the surfaces. Um, that then indicates that we need special cleaning. And the reason we know that we need special cleaning is because we now have testing that we can do on both surfaces and air uh, that is reasonably priced so that we can determine, like I said before, before and after, uh, you know, do some of those comparisons and things and uh, uh, just really start to uh, hone in on some of the things that will actually work including the one that you saw some evidence for, the hypochlorous acid, um, potentially means that other sorts of acid style cleaners would work. But again, until you have um, a testing to back that up, that's gonna be questionable. Um, and then last but not least, I think there's more study that's necessary in regards to some of these other um, post-cleaning treatments. Um, I think chlorine dioxide has some very, um, good possibility, but I also want to see some test results on that. Now, if you haven't had just absolutely enough um, information on mycotoxins, uh, what I would say is that there's a paper available. Oh, it's a pretty simple title there, Understanding and Dealing with Mycotoxins. Uh, that is available um, uh, I think it's like uh, 12 or 14 pages long. It's got tons of references in there. It's not just made up stuff. It is, uh, you know, if we make a statement in there about mycotoxins moving through the air on the dust particles, there's a scientific research paper that's um, uh, referenced there that you can go to that you can actually see that particular study. If we make a statement in there about uh, different uh, types of mold that produce mycotoxins uh, distribute in the air at different rates and at different air speeds. That's not because we're just uh, pulling that off the top of our head. By the way, if I did that too much more, I'd be even balder than I am. Um, but that's not us just pulling it off the top of our head. That's uh, just looking and reading a ton of different research materials and trying to put it together for you. So it does make it a little bit easier for the layperson or the contractor or the inspector, um, you know, the person who's suffering from mycotoxin exposure to understand a little bit more about this because somebody has done all of that reading and, and extracted the, uh, you know, core little bits and pieces that make sense and then, um, you know, organized it so it makes logical and readable sense in the white paper. So I would encourage you to, uh, go there to the Wondermakers website. It's pretty simple, uh, www.wondermakers.com. And uh, it's pretty prominently listed on the website there. You can get a hold of that white paper. Whew. There you go. Lots of different um, material that we got through in uh, just about an hour. Um, and I apologize because the font on the bottom there that gives my um, uh, email address and um, 
telephone number is in white type, which or white font, which you can't really read. So let me give that to you. If anybody has a question on any of this and would like to talk, uh, certainly we have a policy here at Wondermakers where we'll be happy to chat with professionals and colleagues and interested individuals and uh, you know, do like a 10 minute conversation. If you have a specific question about mycotoxins or need some more resources, we just do that for free. If it's a specific project or something you want us to look for, please realize we are consultants. We do charge for our time. Uh, so if you're asking for more than 10 or 15 minutes to get some basic answers, uh, be respectful of that. So how can you reach me? Uh, even though you can't read it down there on the bottom, the uh, email address is map, just like the word map, map at wondermakers.com, W-O-N-D-E-R-M-A-K-E-R-S, wondermakers.com. Uh, the telephone number at the office here is 269 area code 382-4154. 269-382-4154. Look forward to chatting with you. If you have questions, thank you for uh, going through this with me, and uh, I hope it was useful. God bless you.